Today on the Matt Wall Show, BLM chooses its latest martyr, but things don't work out as they expect when his female victim shows up at the protest to speak out. Also, the CEO of Starbucks shuts down stores in a number of major cities, declaring that America is now unsafe. But is America unsafe, or is it specifically Democrat-controlled cities that are unsafe? And also, Democrats declare that, uh, quote, we're all going to die, direct quote, after their latest global warming bill fails to pass. Plus, Marvel fans call for a trigger warning before the, the new uh, Thor movie that just came out. And our daily cancellation, the New York Times, has a report about hotness. Not the global warming kind, but the other kind. We'll talk about all that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. The latest inflation numbers are in, and it's not looking good, to say the least. We've hit a 40-year high at 9.1%, thanks to uh, this genius and brilliant administration. Our nation's authorities are now openly admitting to having completely missed the flashing red lights of inflation, and this administration's failed economic policy as well. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted she was wrong about the path inflation would take, saying, quote, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy and food prices and supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that at the time I didn't fully understand. Well, there you have it. Straight from the horse's mouth. I didn't fully understand. I didn't anticipate, she says. Now, I know you're worried about uh, affording basic necessities in the months to come, food, gas, shelter, but she didn't know. It's not her fault. You know, look, guys, just take it easy on her goes without saying that you can't trust the so-called authorities on economic policy, which is why you should invest at least some of your money in gold and silver with Birch Gold Group. Protect your savings from a highly turbulent economy by diversifying your 401k or IRA into physical gold. It's not too late for you to take action now. Text Walsh to 989898 and get a free info kit on diversifying and protecting your savings with precious metals. Birch Gold Group has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers for a reason. To find out why, text Walsh to 989898 and get real advice from Birch Gold today. Again, text Walsh to 989898 to claim your free, no-obligation info kit on protecting your savings with gold. So we've heard that the good guy with a gun is a mythological figure, a false narrative. Such a person doesn't exist in real life, we're told, uh, or so the gun-grabbing faction claims anyway. In the case of Uvalde, they're correct. We now know, according to the latest report, which came out just over the weekend, that 400 officers, 400, not a typo apparently, were on the scene while the shooter was executing elementary school children. This is a small army of heavily armed cops um, not one good guy with a gun among them, though, because they were all worthless, spineless, quaking little cowards. But just because good guys with guns don't exist in Uvalde, Texas, apparently, that doesn't mean that they don't exist anywhere else in the country. Like in Indiana, for example, as CNN reports, quote, a shooting rampage that killed three people and injured two others at an Indiana mall ended after an armed witness shot and killed the assailant, police said. Around 6 p.m. local time Sunday, Multiple people called 911 to report an active shooter at the Greenwood Park Mall. Greenwood Police Chief Jim Eisen told reporters, investigators believe the unidentified gunman, an adult male, was shot and killed by a lawfully armed 22-year-old man who, quote, observed the shooting in progress. According to Eisen, the Greenwood Police Department tra uh, has trained for a mass shooting scenario and has performed multiple mall exercises to prepare for active shooter situations. He said, Quote, but I'm going to tell you the real hero of the day is the citizen that was lawfully carrying a firearm in the food court and was able to stop the shooter almost as soon as he began, Eisen said. But this is a CNN article, which means that there's going to be some narrative damage control done also. So immediately after that, we're also told 
It's rare to have an armed bystander attack an active shooter, according to a data analysis published by the New York Times. There were at least 433 active shooter attacks in the U.S. from 2020-21. According to the data anal- uh, analysis, active shooter attacks were defined as those in which one or more shooters killed or attempted to kill multiple unrelated people in a populated place. Of those 433 active shooter cases, an armed bystander shot the attacker in 22 of the incidents. In 10 of those, the good guy was a security guard or an off-duty police officer, the Times reported. And having more than one armed person at the scene who is not a member of law enforcement can create confusion and carry dire risks, the report found. Now, of course, the statistics that are presented here, uh, they're presented in such a way to immediately disqualify dozens or even hundreds of other good guy with a gun scenarios They're only counting so-called active shooters dispatched by armed bystanders. And then they they, uh, qualify that and define that in a very arbitrary way. So they aren't counting incidents like the one that occurred just two days ago in St. Louis, where a customer at a gas station shot and killed an armed robber who was in the middle of a violent crime spree. The guy had a knife to the throat of the, uh, of, of the, the cashier. That sort of thing happens frequently, but all such events are magically erased through tricks of categorization. And yet, even as CNN presents it, let's just pretend it's only 22. That's 22 mass shooters in the last 22 years who have been taken down by armed bystanders. That that likely means hundreds of lives saved. At least once a year, by CNN's estimate, a mass shooting is thwarted by a good guy with a gun. This would seem to be very positive news and reason enough to uh, encourage law-abiding and responsible gun owners to exercise their Second Amendment rights as much as possible. But as we've learned, there can be no positive news if it contradicts the narrative. That's why the reaction to this story on the left has drifted all the way into outright sympathy for the dead mass shooter. One viral tweet from a CBS reporter in Indiana can, I think, summarize this sentiment pretty well. Justin Kohler tweeted, the term Good Samaritan came from a Bible passage of a man from Samaria who stopped on the side of the road to help a man who was injured and and ignored. I cannot believe we live in a world where the term can equally apply to someone killing someone. My God. Yes, he killed someone. What a shameful tragedy. Never mind that the someone in this case was a mass murdering psychopath that the bystander risked his life for the sake of rescuing strangers from the psychopath's bloody rampage. That's not enough to earn the Good Samaritan badge, says Justin, and many on the left have voiced their agreement with that. But this was not the weekend's only example of the left sympathizing with a crazed lunatic gunman. There was another far more egregious case, a case that brings us Yet another name to add to the rogues gallery of BLM martyrs. On Friday, um, ambulance-chasing parasite Ben Chump, or Crump, sorry, a race-baiting vulture so totally devoid of integrity that Al Sharpton looks like Frederick Douglass by comparison, tweeted the following, quote, This is Tekel Sundberg. Minneapolis, the police department, killed this smart, loving, and artistic 20-year-old after an hours-long standoff while he was experiencing a mental health crisis. We need answers from MPD as to why Tekel's mental health crisis became a death sentence! Exclamation point. He chooses an accompanying photo of a good old Tekel smiling 
warmly and innocently. He apparently decided not to post a photo like this one, which you can see, where Sunberg can be seen holding a giant bag of weed and pointing two pistols at the camera. Two pistols in one hand, by the way. Not good gun safety, just so you know. Credit to Crump, though, for managing to find an image of this guy where he's not waving a firearm around. That couldn't have been easy. Um, Though on second thought, his hands are cut off in the picture Crump chose. They're cropped out of the photo, so we have no idea what he might have been holding, actually. But we do know what he was holding on the night when police shot and killed him. Uh, He was armed and had been in a standoff, as actually Crump noted, with police for over six hours. So they tried for six hours to coax him out of the apartment building where he had barricaded himself. Finally, a police sniper had a shot and took it, judging that he posed an intolerable danger to other people in the building. And they had reason to make that assumption because Sunberg had been firing indiscriminately into a neighboring apartment where a young mother and her children were present and were cowering in fear, hiding for their lives. This is the loving and artistic man that Crump calls for us to mourn. And BLM activists in the city were, of course, eager to heed the call. A crowd gathered outside of the scene of the shooting a couple of days later on Saturday to lament the death of the psychotic man who attempted to uh, you know, murder a, a woman and her children, and also to protest the police who saved the lives of that woman and her children. How dare they? The protesters marched, and they held their signs, and they chanted in support of their new scumbag hero. Everything was going according to plan, as we've seen many times before. Until a woman named Arabella Foss Yarbrough uh, threw a wrench in their plans. She's the woman whose apartment Sunberg was firing into. And she, of course, is not at all the first female victim of a BLM martyr. Far from it. Nearly every BLM martyr has had a history of violently abusing women, which is not a coincidence, by the way. But she is the first, as far as I know, to show up and speak out publicly. She confronted the crowd um, about what she experienced and about what their martyr, what their hero had done to her and her children. And their response to her speaks volumes. Listen to this. You guys are celebrating his life. It was a terror. I'm sure it was a terror. It's not okay. okay. You're alive. Get in the car! My kid's in the car! My kid's in the car! My black kid is in the car! 
you're alive, someone in the crowd sarcastically responds. She's obviously going through a moment, says a guy with a plethora of chins. Someone else is more direct. Shut up, he said to her. Shut up. I mean, this is a woman saying, uh, you know, this guy was shooting into my apartment with my kids and almost killed me. Shut up. The crowd of what appears to be mostly middle-aged white people openly scoffs at a young woman who lived through a night of terror as she and her children were forced to dodge bullets in their own home. A home they can't go back to, she notes, because it's riddled with bullet holes. The crowd of BLM boomers wanted to dismiss and silence the victim of their new hero. Uh, That's what they wanted to do, but they didn't succeed. Because the video went viral, and just like that, as soon as that video went viral, the media moved on from the Sunberg story. Just moved on. Like it never happened. All future plans for murals and monuments and statues have all presumably been canceled. Arabella's testimony was such an embarrassment for BLM, and that scene you just watched, such a humiliation for them, that they have no choice but to pretend the whole thing never happened. Riots are called off. Everything's called off. We'll wait for the next one. Okay. We'll wait for a BLM martyr who victimized women, but um, where the women are not going to say anything publicly. Even Ben Chump uh, or Crump hasn't spoken out about it again since Friday. Instead, he's moved on. You know, the latest thing I I checked, actually, I checked right before I went on the air to see if uh, he has offered any updates on this story. Of course, I knew that he wasn't going to retract or apologize, obviously, but I wanted to see what he was talking about. Well, he's moved on now to tweeting angrily about two black girls who were allegedly snubbed by a racist Sesame Street character at a parade. That's what he's moved on to. He said, never mind this uh, Sunberg thing. Let's talk about the parade. Let's make that into a thing. And I'll assume he'll ride that horse until, uh, you know, the Sesame Street character speaks out with his side of the story. In the end, it makes you wonder, really, what might have happened had Jacob Blake's rape victim um, or the victim of George Floyd's home invasion robbery spoken up. Now, one can certainly understand why they didn't. It takes immense courage to speak up when the mob wants you to stay silent. But fortunately, Arabella had that courage and she exposed BLM for what it is and what it's always been. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, we start with some uh, familiar, unfortunately familiar scenes around the country. First, here's Malibu, where a gang of looters carried off about a half a million dollars of uh, items. You can see it here. So they're just, you know, they're running, but they're being relatively casual. Some of them are wearing masks. Others aren't even bothering to. But why bother wearing masks? They're not going to be corrupt prosecuted. And they take uh, about half a million uh, items they took from this luxury, you know, boutique store and ran off. And that's in Malibu. And we had another case. This was in San Francisco. It was on the exact same day. And here we have a group of thugs just uh, smashing. The, now they're being very casual about it because this is San Francisco. You don't have to worry about it. And nothing's going to happen to you at all. You take all the time you want, guys. And they smash the windows of this uh, van and are taking everything they can out of it. And then just driving off. Doesn't matter. They're driving you know, got uh, someone, well, as they drive off, someone runs up and kicks the car as it's driving away. So that's that's all we're getting for law enforcement. That's as far as the law enforcement efforts are going to go in San Francisco. The looters, as they're driving away in their vehicle, someone runs up and just kicks the tires. Hey, get out of here. Don't come back. 
And then that's not it either, uh, because the next incident also happened a couple days ago around the same time. This is a restaurant. I'm not sure where this is, but you can see two people just walking behind the counter and carrying off a whole tray of fried chicken. What are they going to do with all that fried chicken? I mean, that's way too much for one person to eat. But hey, why not? Just take it. And and she's got some uh, containers, look like some biscuits in there. Just walking off with it. Because this is what you can do. And those are just from the last couple of days. As we know, we've seen footage like this from cities across the country every single day. It's bad enough now that major chains are abandoning these places altogether. They're shutting down. We've seen this already. Target, uh, Walgreens, CVS, um, other you know chains like that in some of these cities have shut down. Now, Starbucks is the latest. Here's the CNN report. It says, Starbucks is planning to close... 16 locations across various cities citing safety concerns. Um, A spokesperson told CNN Business, quote, after careful consideration, we're closing some stores and locations that have experienced a high volume of challenging incidents. So that's the euphemism we're going with here. These are challenging incidents um, that make it unsafe to continue to operate. The stores are in Seattle, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Portland, Oregon. They'll be Oregon. They'll be closed by the end of July. Just a side note here. I'm 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 stopping to think. Hmm, what do all of those places have in common? Seattle, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, Portland. Hmm. There might be some some common uh, threads, some similarities. You know, when you do the Venn diagram, you might find a lot of some 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 things that that fall into that middle bubble there. Continues, in a Monday letter to employees, Debbie Stroud and Denise Nelson, both senior vice presidents of U.S. operations, discussed safety in Starbucks stores, said employees are seeing firsthand the challenges facing our communities, personal safety, racism, lack of access to health care, a growing mental health crisis, rising drug use, and more. With stores in thousands of communities across the country, we know these challenges can at times play out within our stores, too. Um, and so they're shutting down the stores. Now they throw in racism because they got to put something in there that's PC. I'm surprised they didn't, they didn't also include uh, climate change. Given where some of these things are happening and they're in some warmer climates, they could have just chalked the whole thing up to said, you know, we got to get out of town because of climate change. It's getting too much. We got to move inland, higher ground. Uh, last week, Howard Schultz, who's the CEO of uh, Starbucks, had an internal meeting with his executive team. And the video was released. I don't know if it was leaked or what, but it ended up online. And here's what he said. This is kind of instructive. Listen to this. I don't have to spend too much time on what's going on in the country and how America has become unsafe. Uh, But you all read the press release the last couple of days about the fact that we are beginning to close stores that are not unprofitable. But we're closing stores as a result of the co-creation sessions that we've had almost 60 now, 25 in the SSC and the rest in the field. We had one yesterday in San Antonio. But in all of those sessions, uh, it has shocked me that one of the primary concerns that our retail partners have is their own personal safety. And then we heard the stories that go along with it about what happens in our bathrooms. The issue of mental illness, the issues of homelessness, and the issues of crime. And Starbucks is a window into America. We have stores in every community, and we are facing things in which the stores were not built for. 
And so we're listening to our people and closing stores. And this is just the beginning. There are going to be many more. Okay, so a couple of, couple of things there from what he says. First of all, you know, he says America, America is unsafe. America is unsafe, but you notice he's not leaving. Starbucks is not leaving America. They're just leaving certain places in America. They're leaving Seattle and Portland and, uh, like I said, those places, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. And he chalks that up to America has become unsafe. Um, it's not. You know, this is not an America problem. America is not an unsafe place. There are certain areas in America which are extremely unsafe and which I certainly wouldn't be starting any businesses and I wouldn't be moving to them. But that's not America as a whole because non-urban areas that are not run by Democrats have not seen any, in most cases, any sizable or uh, crime spike or any crime spike at all. Where I am right now, you know, where I've spent the last few weeks, it's a small town America, far away from the nearest big city, and uh, people still leave their doors unlocked at night when they go to sleep. Nobody worries about it. People leave their keys in their car, you know. You can go to the local convenience store, and the cashier isn't hiding behind bulletproof glass. You know, in fact, I went into the tackle shop nearby a couple days ago, and the guy working there had to run in the back for something. He left the cash register unattended for several minutes. Unthinkable in many of these places. And yet that's what happens around here and in, and, and in many areas in, a, in, a, in, in this country. But those, again, are non-urban, not Democrat-controlled Democrat places that don't have this problem. So why is that? Like, why don't they have the problem here, but they have it in Los Angeles, and they have it in Seattle, and they have it in Philadelphia, they have it in Washington, D.C.? Well, one is weak leadership. Okay, that's, that's not a surprise. Um, a leadership that refuses to actually pursue these criminals and punish them. It's a, it's a very strange connection here, where if you, if you don't punish certain activity, certain behavior, then you get more of that behavior. If you don't do anything to stop it, you get more of it. And that's true on a small scale with parents of young kids. Um, and that's also true on a societal level as well. If society does not punish violent, intolerable, unacceptable behavior, you get more of it. There's no disincentive. You know, you can't... Uh, Despite the utopian hopes of, of some people, you, you can't just hope on people's, everyone to have a, you know, be good-hearted and good-natured and, and make their own decision to, to not behave this way. So when you have leadership that is weak, you end up with more of this. And then also it's a matter of, uh, of culture. Collapse of the family. Okay, the still unspeakable reality in these situations, but that is a reality we have to talk about, is that crime is a whole lot worse in predominantly black areas. It just is. That's, that's a fact. I mean, that's just an absolute fact, cannot be disputed. Why is that? Well, because the family in the black community is totally ravaged, destroyed. And in fact, there are predominantly white areas that have horrible crime problems as well. If you go to really poor areas in Appalachia, you go to trailer parks that are uh, that are just dr drug addiction, meth addiction, 
just ravage those places too. But what do you find there? You also find that the family it hardly exists. You find a lot of single parents and you find a lot of kids that are raised essentially with no parents at all. They might have, there might be a, a warm body in the home that takes the, takes the title of parent but isn't actually doing anything to parent the kids because the parent is, is a drug addict and that's all they're worried about. So that's the commonality here. And now it's all, it gets worse. It spreads across America the more the family collapses. And this is, uh, yes, the, the family, the state of the family, the state of marriage, childless homes, fatherless homes. That's the worst in the inner city. Now, there you're talking about 80, 90% of kids raised without fathers in the home. Uh, but the number is going up, especially fatherless homes, single-parent homes. It's going up across the country. And so the more that happens, this is going to become increasingly an American problem. But right now, um, you find it by far and away predominantly in these communities. Because of leadership, actually, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not leadership and something else. It's actually just leadership. It's leadership in the city, and then it's also leadership in the home. So when you have a lack of leadership, of, of political leadership, and you also have a lack of leadership in the home, kids that are raised in homes where there's no one leading them, there's no example set, then you have total absolute chaos. What else could you expect? All right, let's go next to this. Mediate has this report. It says, more Trump voters living in Republican-controlled states said secession would make things better in their states than those who said it would not. Uh, Respondents to a new Yahoo News YouGov poll were asked, do you think your state would be better off or worse off if it left the United States and became an independent country? Among all respondents, more than twice as many said they'd be worse off as those who said things would be better off. Well, 15% things would be about the same. Another 24% responded they were not sure. But Yahoo News West Coast uh, correspondent Andrew Romano broke down the responses to a more granular level and found people in red states who voted for former President Donald Trump were much more amenable to seceding. Quote, red state Donald Trump voters are now more likely to say they'd be personally better off at 33% than worse off at 29% if their state seceded from the U.S., and became an independent country. It's a striking rejection of national unity that dramatizes the growing culture war between Democratic and Republican-controlled states on core issues such as guns, abortion, and democracy itself, uh, et cetera, and so forth. Now, just a note I want to make about that, that um, the people responding that they think their life would be, we can assume they mean in the immediate better you know, if if there was a national divorce, I think those people are um, they they are utopianists in their own right, because that's not the case. I mean, history is a pretty good guide here, both American history and the history of the world. That when a country breaks apart, uh, whether it's through a civil war or not, and it's pretty rare that you have the you know a, a country breaking apart peacefully. In fact, I don't think it's ever happened. At least it's again, it's very rare. Um, but no matter how it happens, people's lives are not immediately better. In fact, your, your, your lives get worse in the immediate. And that would be the case here, too. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. One is just a simple fact. When you have a seismic change of this kind, um, it's not going to make things better immediately. This is further destabilization. And there are a lot of problems, too, especially for if you imagine some sort of scenario where 
things break apart from red states to blue states. And it's hard to even imagine how that would work because uh, it's not like 1861 where the split was kind of right across the middle. You cut the country in half. That's not the case here. You know, red states and blue states are kind of intermingled. And then you have uh, you have you have thoroughly blue areas within red states. How does all that work? Just more indication of why you know breaking a part of the country would not be peaceful, um, because things would need to realign in a way that just probably could not be done peacefully, probably. And then there there are problems too. If you're if you end up in the the however this breaks up, however this this ends up getting organized, if you're on the if you're in the red state portion. Um, a lot of, let's just look at the fact that a lot of the uh, majority of the manufacturing in this country happens in blue states like California. Um, not to mention Silicon Valley, you know, all the, the people that control the internet are all going to be now in a different country that's hostile to your own. So a lot of problems. Uh, and, and yet, you might you hear me say this, and you might be thinking, "Well, haven't you said that you think a, a national divorce is the way forward?" What I'm saying is that I think we're going to reach a point where there's no other choice. It's not ideal, of course, it's not ideal. The ideal scenario, the best case scenario for everybody, is that the people in this country who've lost their minds and are now living in a separate universe, that they come to their senses collectively and rejoin us in in reality where they live a life grounded to some extent in truth and moral decency, and we can all unite there in that place and move forward together as a country. That's the best. That's ideal. That's what I would far and away prefer. It's just that it's that's probably not going to happen. You want to talk about things that have never happened in history. I don't think anything like that's ever happened. Where you have divisions that are this deep and this wide, and they just kind of on their own mend themselves. I don't think that's ever happened. We could pray for that to happen. Pray for that to happen every day. I just don't think it will. So I think we're going to reach a point where there's simply no way forward. When you have two sides, and even on those sides, they break into smaller sides, and everything is factionalizing, but you still have this rift right down the middle, of, of, of two sides living in separate universes, for how long can they share a country? I think you're going to reach a point where it, it simply cannot go on. And um, what happens from there in the immediate is not good or fun. And it's going to be, it would be very difficult to say the least. But again, I'm, I try to be, to stay in reality. That's where I like to live. And this is the reality. I just think we don't we don't want to romanticize it, or have um, you know have have hopes that are unfounded. All right, let's move to this. It says, um, let's see. Speaking of living in different universes, pretty good example here. NJ.com. It says a transgender inmate who impregnated two women while incarcerated at Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women has been moved to a new facility, according to the Department of Corrections. Demi Minor, 27, was transferred to Garden State Youth Correctional Facility, a prison for young adult offenders in Burlington County. Um, he said the, this is according to Dan Sparaza, Department of Corrections spokesman, he said the DOC moved Minor to the vulnerable unit at the facility and that she's currently the only she 
is currently the only woman prisoner on the site. Sparazza said he could not comment on the DOC's specific housing actions in Miner's case because of policies around privacy. So this is a, I feel like this should be making even bigger headlines than it is. It's actually not making that many headlines because the, the, the mainstream media would rather not talk about something like this. Um, but it's, this is big news. I mean, a woman, a woman impregnated two other women? That's never happened before in history. By the way, somehow some uh, video of this, this, this person, Demi Moore, has his own Twitter account, which I would like to assume he's not running himself. But there are videos of him that, have, that, that get posted somehow. So he has apparently access to a cell phone. Um, maybe that's part of him living his true identity. He said, you know what? I'm a woman who needs a cell phone. And so they say, you know us ladies, we like to gab. So you got to give me a cell phone. They gave him a cell phone and he's been posting videos. And um, it's not going to surprise you to learn that this guy is making no attempt whatsoever to even appear like a woman. Even if he was making an attempt, wouldn't make a difference. Doesn't mean he should still be, he should be housed with, with women. But that's the farce, okay, that's happening in the prison system right now. That you've got these men who are openly taking advantage of this new situation where they could be transferred to a woman's facility. And why would a man want to be transferred to a woman facility? Well, I, I don't think I need to explain that. One is that it's a lot safer for any man, trans or not. You know, it's now there is violence that happens in women's uh, prisons, but you got to think as a man, you have to be a little bit less concerned about some of the things that can happen to you as a man in a man's facility. So it's a cushier, safer situation. And also you have, if you're a violent offender, you have access to a whole bunch of women who are now going to be locked in cages with you. And apparently this guy took advantage of in two cases, and, and now there are two women pregnant. On the same note here, CNN, ha- I don't know why I keep reading from CNN today. That's a, that's a mistake, but that's where we are. It says the University of Pennsylvania nominated swimmer Leah Thomas, who's become the face of the debate on transgender women in sports, for the, 2020, for the 2022 NCAA Woman of the Year Award. The Ivy League swimmer was nominated as a Division I athlete for swimming and diving. The award is meant to honor... The, quote, academic achievements, athletics, ec- athletic excellence, community service, and leadership of graduating female college athletes from all three divisions. So the University of Pennsylvania has heard all of the outrage over Leah Thomas being allowed to compete against women, heard the outrage from outside and also from within, from the actual real women being forced to compete against this guy being forced to share a locker room with him. We heard from one of those uh, swimmers in my film, What is a Woman?, which you can watch by going to whatiswoman.com. So they've heard all of this, and their response is a big middle finger to everybody, saying, you know what, oh, you didn't like that? <laughs> you, didn't, you, you didn't like that? Well, well guess what? Uh, now we're nominating him for Woman of the Year. How do you like that? Because this, for the umpteenth time, is what the left always does. They always double down. You could be outraged, you could be upset, and their response is going to be, oh, you didn't like that? Well, now I'm going to do more of the thing you're upset about. Now, is that an argument on our side for giving up or for surrendering or for soft-pedaling even more so as we don't upset them? There are a lot of conservatives who seem to take that approach. No, it's, it's an argument for doing the exact same thing. They double down, we triple down. That's the only way forward. 
Also wanted to mention this from NBC News. Democrats are sounding dire warnings after Senator Joe Manchin tanked their hopes of acting on climate change. Here's a quote from Chairman John Yermuth, uh, who's uh, the House Budget Committee chairman. He says, we're all going to die, which is actually true. We are all going to die, in fact. But are we going to die soon from climate change? That I'm skeptical about, but this is what he's saying. We're all going to die. Yarmouth's remarks on Friday captured the cocktail of anger, frustration, resentment, and powerlessness that many Democrats felt after Manchin took a one-man wrecking ball to what's left of President Joe Biden's agenda, dealing a heavy blow to their big policy ambitions and further complicating a tough midterm election landscape for the party. Um, And there were many other people quoted, Cori Bush among them, but a lot of Democrats. In fact, there was another report that I think was also from CNN, but I've read too much CNN stuff, of uh, Democrats who were, and Democrat staffers who were in tears over this, distraught, because, as Yarmouth said, we're all going to die now because of Joe Manchin. And we've been, now, it, the good news is that we were supposed to be dead already. And the apocalypse keeps getting moved back and moved back. We, we, we are repeatedly informed that this is our last chance. We have to act right now. If we don't, it's over. And we've been told that over and over and over again over the last 20 years or so. And we managed to survive. But maybe this is it. For this time, this time it's real. Because of Joe Manchin, we are all going to die. The fate of the world is sealed. Joe Manchin will go down as the man who murdered 7 billion people. CBS certainly seems to think so. Here's their report on the... Um, climate change crisis and all the people that it's killing, especially in Europe. Listen to this. The same heat wave is already being blamed for extreme temperatures and widespread wildfires across other parts of Europe. You're looking at the pictures and scientists say this is all part of climate change caused by human activity. Roxana Saberi is tracking Europe's hot weather and the damage it's causing. Wildfires raging across southwest France have scorched around 35,000 acres and forced more than 16,000 people to flee. In Spain, the scene seems similarly apocalyptic. Neighboring Portugal remains on high alert after fires were fanned by drought that's hit at least 96% of the country and a heat wave reaching a record of nearly 117 degrees. Here and in Spain, authorities say more than 1,000 people have died from the recent heat. And now Britain is bracing for its record high of at least 103 degrees on Tuesday. So hot, the UK's National Weather Service has issued its first ever red warning for extreme heat, meaning there's a risk to life. Scientists say heat waves have become more frequent and more intense and last longer. Climate change has everything to do with the extreme weather that we're seeing at the moment, and it's human-induced climate change. It's not a natural variation. You know, as always, such a narrow view of history and, uh, and, and giving human beings a really elevated status, you know, uh, because keep in mind, every time we hear, well, it's record-breaking heat. This is the hottest it's ever been in this part of the world. That, that always comes with a, with, a, with a certain qualification. Because sometimes when they say record-breaking, hottest ever, sometimes they mean uh, in the last 80 years. Sometimes they mean in the last 100 years. Sometimes they go back 120. It really depends on when they decide, what, what record they're looking at and when they've decided the records begin. But 
Whatever it is, I can tell you that the Earth is, in fact, older than 60 years, older than 80. It's even older than 120. You, you might, uh, might find that shocking to find out. In, in fact, the Earth's been around for billions of years. Um, and so whenever they say this is the hottest that this part of the, the world has ever been, you can know for, for a certainty that that's not the case. Whatever you're experiencing right now, it's not the hottest, it's not the coldest, it's not the worst. The Earth's been around for a long time. A very long time. And the idea that human beings, I, it's just, it's, I'm sorry, it's absurd on its face. That this planet, which has existed for billions of years, which is I constantly have to remind people, is, um, is a slave not to our SUVs, but to the sun. Okay, that giant, enormous ball of gas at the center of our solar system which we are orbiting around, okay, which has a, a, a gravitational pull that, that it stretches billions of miles out into space, um, which could, you know, the, the sun could burp tomorrow and incinerate all life on Earth, all right? Just with a, have a, the sun could have a little bit of indigestion and incinerate all life on Earth. And that's what's calling the shots as far as the weather goes on Earth. But the notion that human beings... It's not even that that human beings since the beginning of, of human civilization, which really you know when did when did civilization begin? You know maybe ten thousand years ago. Um, it's not even they're not even claiming that that during that time we have managed to destroy all life on Earth and destroy the planet. They're saying just since industrialization. Okay, so really through the whole course of Earth, that's just a small sliver of time. We have destroyed all life on Earth. We have, we have that kind of power, they say. And we also have the power to heal the Earth. And that we can do it through legislation. And think about how, talk about narrow. Okay, legislation that if it impacts anything, it only impacts what the United States does. Forgetting about the entire rest of the populated Earth. All of Asia, for example. With, with, it has countries with billions of people in it. And these are industrialized societies. Well, they can still do whatever they want to do. But the Democrats in Congress, they have the power to just write legislation that heals the planet and rescues us from doom. And yet, in this case, they were not able to pass the legislation, so we are doomed. For the 100th time, we're doomed. And can I say, if that's the... I am highly skeptical about that claim. Okay, I'm very skeptical about it. But if it's true, if jo if Joe Manchin really doomed us all, and at this time it's actually serious, this was our last best chance. It's over now. Then, then okay. Then why worry? We're doomed anyway. Just live your life while you have. In, in, enjoy the warmer temperatures to the extent that you can. Go spend a lot of time at the pool at the beach. You're gonna have a lot more of the beach as it comes. You know, as it as it comes inland more and more, and uh, and just enjoy because there's nothing we can do now, according to you. Why worry about the things you can't change? That's my question. Uh, one other th quick thing. This is from the Daily Wire. It says, fans of, the Marvel, of uh, the Marvel films are divided about a chemotherapy scene in the new hit film Thor, Love and Thunder, with some clamoring for a trigger warning and others deriding the protesters for their squeamishness. Uh, Thor, Love and Thunder premiered on July 8th. It features a scene in which actress Natalie Portman, who plays Thor's love interest, scientist Jane Foster, undergoes chemotherapy treatment for stage four cancer. 
Um, one fan wrote on social media, no spoilers, but Thor Love and Thunder should have a trigger warning for graphic depictions of cancer. And the fact that we didn't know going in is atrocious. The fan concluded, cancer is way too common of a trigger. And when they show it that graphically with that much imagery and dwelling on it and talking about it that much, you need to be warned, especially for a Marvel movie, which people go to for escapism and shouldn't have to read the comics. Um, So I guess she got cancer in the comics and that's why they have, I don't know. And then there are other fans chiming in saying this is terrible. Uh, People have PTSD from it. Look, this is actually interesting because on one hand, I, I, you know what? I sort of agree. I, I sort of agree with the, with the criticism that it's gratuitous in a way to put a cancer storyline into the middle of one of these dumb movies, into the middle of Thor. You know, it's it is it is a little bit actually gratuitous, um, and the reason is that these aren't real movies; they're just toy commercials and brand awareness campaigns. And in that context, cancer seems like a kind of inappropriate subject matter and sort of exploitative. Now, I don't think there should be a trigger warning because I just disagree in principle with trigger warnings, but it is a cheap and kind of easy way to create an emotional moment without doing the work, as the left likes to say. You haven't done the work, so it's lazy. You don't have to uh, do, you know, write a good script. You don't have to make people emotionally invested in the scene. You don't have to worry about good acting. All you have to do is just have a character with cancer, and, and that's good enough. It's kind of like using a, a Nazi as your bad guy, which I think these Marvel movies also do quite a bit. Because if you do that, it's easy. You don't have to actually convince the audience through good writing and good acting to hate the bad guy. He's a Nazi. He's got all that baggage with him. All the work is done. Just slap a, a you know, slap a, um, you know, a Nazi symbol on him, and you're good to go. So, on one hand, I agree. On the other hand, trigger warnings as a concept are incredibly stupid. Um, so it just goes to show, though that Martin Scorsese was correct when he said that Marvel movies aren't cinema. They're more like theme parks. And in cinema, you know, the audience would never be upset or offended because something happened they didn't expect. Like, you, that's what you want. If you actually are a film fan and you want to go watch a movie, if you want to partake in the art of cinema and, and witness it, then you don't want to know every beat ahead of time. You want things to happen that you don't expect. That's why you're there. That's part of the magic of cinema. But superhero fans, um, that's not what they're in it for. They want the same thing over and over again. Uh, Very much like children. They just want the same thing over and over again. They don't want anything surprising, anything different. They just want a theme park ride where you see the track ahead of time and you've been on it before and you know where all the dips and dives and everything are going to be. So I guess in that way, it's like, an actual theme park ride, if they tried to, you know, if you were on a theme park ride, if there was a, a, a cancer theme park ride, we would all agree that's highly inappropriate. So in a way, I can actually see where they're coming from. This was my attempt to sympathize with Marvel fans while at the same time insulting them, which is the only way I can do it. Let's get now to the comment section.
With summer vacation season now in full swing, it's important to protect yourself from identity theft while you're traveling, which is a time when you're pretty vulnerable to it. One of the most widespread risks to personal information to watch out for is uh, pickpocketing. With your credit card, social security number, and driver's license in hand, identity thieves have all the info they need to do what they do best by using your identity. You think of identity theft as something that happens online, which it does, but it can also happen in physical form as well. Um, through through uh, through pickpocketing. So it's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. Your personal information gets exposed so often, making it dangerously easy for someone to steal your identity. Protecting your identity has never been more important and never been easier with LifeLock by Norton. LifeLock det- detects and alerts you to potential identity threats that you may not be able to spot on your own. And if you do become a victim of identity theft, God forbid, a dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it for you. Nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but it's easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock. Identity theft protection starts here. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com Walsh. That's LifeLock.com Walsh for 25% off. Okay, first comment says... My daughter was born without a uterus, and even then it proves she's a woman because she has to have medical interventions because of it. Men don't need medical intervention if they don't have a uterus. Yes, that's a very good point, and uh, it's a point I've made before. This is what we call the exception that proves the rule in that, you know, to the people who say, well, you can't define a woman as someone with a uterus or someone who can get pregnant because there are women who can't get pregnant or don't have uteruses. Well, this is an exception that proves the rule because... If a woman, you know, is not able, is is of childbearing age and is not able to get pregnant, then you know that something's wrong. Like you, the, the, you could go to the doctor as a woman and say, this is the issue, I can't get pregnant. And the doctor's going to know something is wrong here. Okay. And it might not be that you don't have a uterus. It could be any, it could be dozens of different things, hundreds of different things, but they know that something is going wrong. And most of the time they, if they run some tests and they take a look, they can find out what it is. Like, sure enough. You're coming to me as a woman. You say you can't get pregnant. Well, we know that women should be able to get pregnant because that is one of the defining features of a woman. The fact that you are not able to means that something is wrong. Let's take a look. Sure enough, so here it is. Here's, here's the problem. It could be a hormonal problem. It could be a problem uh, with, you know, it could be a problem with the reproductive organs. It could be anything. Whereas for a man, right, if, if you go to the doctor and say, I'm not able to get pregnant, well, that is not an indication that anything is wrong at all. They could run all the tests in the world and they could find that everything is in perfectly working order because men are not supposed to be able to get pregnant and no man ever has. So good point there. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Future Imperfect says, got to disagree there, Matt. Cultural appropriation is levied in other races. Aquafina, an actress, is accused of speaking in black scent like a black, like a black person in parentheses. Uh, clarifying what that means, I guess. On a related note, a black person that doesn't speak like a typical black person is accused of acting white, being an Oreo, quote-unquote, or any other myriad descriptor to suggest that they're appropriating white culture. Well, okay, your, your point about the Asian actress, and we have heard, there's been a few examples of this, Asian actresses, maybe it's hadn't happened also to um, Latino, Hispanic, Latinx rather, sorry, um, actors and actresses where they've been accused of appropriating. I think this is, maybe we should narrow it down a little bit and say this is a charge m- mostly leveled at white people, occasionally non-white people, but never leveled at black people. You know, a black person is never accused of cultural appropriation. Now, the example you give of, well, a black person is accused of acting white, 
No, it's not. The accusation is not that you're appropriating from white people. It's supposed to be an insult. Like it's it's bad. It is. It's an insult. You're not insulting white people. No, you're. It's an insult against black people to stoop to acting like a white person. So it's a very different kind of criticism. Um, let's see. King Crimson says hearing Matt say "big booty" is a memory for the ages. Well. Those, these are the kind of historic moments that you get sometimes on the Matt Walsh show when you least expect them. Um, skilled Mayor says, how ironic that Matt is talking about an adult wearing a diaper when we all know as the leader of the SBG, he too wears only a diaper. Well, to be clear about this, as we did talk on Friday about the uh, adult baby diaper loving community as they describe themselves, um, the Sweet Baby Gang has no affiliation with such a community, and I'll explain to you why. The Sweet Baby Gang logo is an image of me as an actual infant when I was born. Now, it might be a drawing, but it is, a, it, it is a, an accurate artistic rendition of what I look like at birth. I was born fully bearded and with glasses. So, important clarification there. You know, this week we're celebrating the first anniversary of our podcast, Morning Wire. In the short period of time that uh, they've been uh, doing their thing, it's become one of the top news podcasts in the world. I suspect it's because Morning Wire gives you only the news you need to know in 15 minutes or less without the manufactured outrage, without the political uh, indoctrination or anything else. How refreshing it really is. If you haven't seen it yet, you got to check it out. New episodes are available every morning, seven days a week, and they give you all the facts on the most important stories of the day. So check out Morning Wire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Daily Wire Plus, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also this week, our sports podcast, Craning Company, is at the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta for um, SEC Media Day. Hard to believe, but uh, college football season is right around the corner, and this week the guys will be out there getting interviews with some of the top coaches and players in the country so tune in to Craning Company's Daily Sports Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Daily Wire Plus, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, the New York Times used to be considered the paper of record, and uh, it still is. Only now it's a record of our cultural decay. The Times may no longer you know, have the same level of prestige or credibility or any level of prestige or cred- credibility at all. But as an unwitting chronicle of decadence, it still has some sort of relevance, arguably. Case in point, the article written by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Danya Isawi, uh, Isawi, Isawi, let's call her. I think I'll go with that. Yeah, that's, that sounds right. Danya Isawi. Anyway, the article's titled, Can't Talk, I'm Busy Being Hot, a social media movement inspired by the rapper Migan the Stallion strikes back at the gatekeepers of beauty. Now, you, of course, are already expecting that this is going to be pretty bad, given that it's in the New York Times and it's about hotness and it mentions Migan the Stallion. But I assure you, it's so much worse than you anticipate. It begins. Uh, Edwina Esteem was wearing a heavy, shapeless graduation gown. It was the color of charcoal and it reached all the way down to her ankles. And yet she had never felt hotter. As she crossed the stage to accept her diploma, she heard the cheers from friends and family members. She was graduating from law school, and that to her was extremely hot. That was a three-year process, said Miss Esteem, Uh, Estime, probably 26, who earned her degree this spring from the Shepherd 
uh, Broad's College of Law at uh, Nova Southeastern University in Davie. There's so many words in here that I'm not able to pronounce. Three years of waking up and not feeling hot for me to get to that one day where I'm like, wow, this is hot. This is what's hot for me right now, she added. She is one of many who are expanding the definition of hotness, taking it beyond its former association with old notions of attractiveness. These days, being hot no longer pertains only to your physical appearance, but includes how you move through the world and how you see yourself. Now, if you're thinking, did this Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist really just go around interviewing random people about times when they felt hot and then wrote an article about it for the New York Times? And the New York Times actually published it? The answer is no. She didn't just go around interviewing them. She also watched their Instagram and TikTok videos. This was a full journalistic investigation, I assure you. No stone was left unturned to find all of the hot people. Continuing, many of those pushing for a broader understanding of the term are also pushing back against the idea that you need to wait for confirmation from someone else before feeling justified in calling yourself hot. To them, hotness is a self-declaration, and that's that. Hotness is no longer just in the eye of the beholder. It's a mood. It's a vibe. Emily Sundberg, a 28-year-old editor and filmmaker in Brooklyn, was eating spaghetti when she had a realization. She was being hot. There was nothing glamorous about it. It was just a solo weeknight dinner at the kitchen counter, and Miss Sundberg was wearing workout clothes and glasses. But she felt moved to make a video of herself as she twirled the pasta strands into a fork and succeeded in getting most of them all the way into her mouth. As she chewed with Kanye West's jail blaring in the background, she stared into the lens with a blank expression. Ms. Sunberg then posted the seven-second video to Instagram stories. Quote, you don't have to ask for permission to be hot online, Ms. Sunberg said. You can take up space and perform and create your own power dynamics between yourself and your audience. I think being hot online is sort of pure and debatably what social media was originally for. That's why it was invented, to be hot online. It's true. I had a similar realization last night when I was standing at the fridge at 11.30 p.m., um, opening the container with my daughter's leftover chicken tenders, which we'd order for her at the restaurant earlier in the evening, but she hadn't touched. And then uh, I was eating them cold along with her side of mac and cheese, which I also ate cold and without a fork. And as I was consuming all the leftovers that my wife specifically said she wanted to save for lunch the following day, and which I also agreed should be saved for lunch, even as I knew in my head that I would almost certainly be eating all of them in a gluttonous and shameful late night binge, I too in that moment came to the realization that I was being hot. But then I realized that I was actually just feeling uh, heartburn. That's so I get confused sometimes. And so I took some Tums and went to bed. I only wish that the New York Times had called me so that I could tell them about this experience. I would have loved to share it with them. Now, you may think there's no reason to continue reading from this Times article, and you're right. Um, but we will anyway. So here's more. Quote, a phenomenon started by the TikTok influencer Mia Lind encourages young women to go on four-mile walks while re- remaining focused on self-affirming thoughts in three areas. What they're grateful for, their goals in life, and how they plan to accomplish them, and how hot they are. Miss Lind says, uh, you may not think of any boys or any boy drama, she said in a video that laid out the ground rules. In an interview, she said that she wanted to ungatekeep the feeling of being hot with her hot girl walk taking it away from male gaze arbiters who treat daily life like some kind of beauty pageant. Being hot is really accessible, more accessible than previously thought, said Miss Lind, who created Migan the Stallion as a, accredited her as an inspiration for the walk. I think there's a really big reclamation of the term hot. The hot girl walk has maintained its popularity since Miss Lind posted her explanation video, which has accrued nearly 3 million videos more than a year ago, 
the hashtag hot girl walk uh, has racked up more than 280 million views. Now, like you, I um, wish I could go back in time and throw myself off of a, bri- a bridge before I'm ever forced to hear the phrase, ungatekeep the feeling of being hot. But it's too late now. We've been exposed. All we can do now is find a way to move forward and maybe try to make some sense of all of this if we can. So here's how I make sense of it. First, one of the hallmarks of a decadent society, and this is explained quite eloquently in the book, The Decadent Society, which you should read if you haven't, is that uh, it repeats itself. It, It runs out of new ideas and just starts recycling old ideas over and over again. And we find this, of course, in Hollywood and pop culture, but we also find it in articles like this. Here we have the the stunning and revolutionary idea that the definition of beauty should be expanded and that confidence and self-affirmation are important. Truly, this is the first time the world has ever encountered such notions. The first time since the last time, anyway, and the last time was 15 seconds before this article was published and 15 seconds before that and every 15 seconds for the past 30 years at least. I mean, this is the same message we've heard on repeat for decades, randomly presented as something different and unique all of a sudden. And because it's a Times article in the year 2022, the issue, of course, has also been arbitrarily racialized because we're told at the end of the piece, quote, Rachel Elizabeth Weisler, a researcher at the University of Oregon specializing in linguistics and black studies, said that many words and phrases that become common in online discourse, including hot, on fleek, and kiki, are rooted in BIPOC and queer communities. Over time, they become co-opted and come to be seen as elements of TikTok speak, she said, a phenomenon she referred to as semantic bleaching. She credited Migan the Stallion as a source of the memes promoting self-affirming messages for young women and girls, citing her 2020 song, Body. Quote, we saw Meg come out with Body during quarantine. It's going to be, and she said, it's going to be a hot girl summer. We're going to be happy. We're going to be confident women. A lot of our language change comes from women. It comes from black people and also from people of color. So the word hot, by the way, has been used in English to denote physical attractiveness for at least like 100 years. Paris Hilton made it her catchphrase 20 years ago. And yet Migan the Stallion, as a, rep- is, as a representative of BIPOC and queer communities, quote unquote, gets credit as a source for the concept because of a song she made two years ago. As the author of the approximately 90 millionth pop song about hotness, she is somehow now a pioneer. She invented it. Now, in my opinion, not to get into too much semantics here, um, if anyone should get credit as a pop pioneer because of self-affirming odes to hotness, it should be the revolutionary musicians known as Right Said Fred, who 30 years ago produced the playful yet poetic anthem, I'm Too Sexy. And the world has really never been the same since, in my opinion. And yet the, the, the thing you notice about all this self-affirmation and supposed confidence, as always, is just how unconvincing it is. All of these people on social media, you know, declare their hotness to the world. But the salient fact is that they're declaring it to the world, right? They, they, they feel the need to declare it. If you were really secure and really confident in and about yourself and your body, you wouldn't feel compelled to announce it on social media. Young women don't post selfies on Instagram or videos on TikTok because they feel beautiful. They do it because they want to feel beautiful, and they're depending on the world to tell them that they're beautiful. This is not self-affirmation, but affirmation through likes and comments and shares, which is the opposite of self-affirmation. It's the same reason they listen to unintelligible pop songs by semi-literate idiots like Migan the Stallion. 
They want to be put into this kind of trance-like state where they can believe themselves to be cool and attractive for three minutes at a time. And that's the primary function of modern pop music, by the way, to provide mantras for desperately insecure people. And there are a lot of desperately insecure people describing themselves in ways that they want to be seen. Right? This is how they want to be seen and need to be seen. Because despite their pretensions, they depend on the world's affirmation and spend their entire lives seeking it. And that is why, finally, I guess, the New York Times, for I'm told the third time, is canceled. They still haven't gotten the message, so we're going to keep trying. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Jeff Tomlin. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. A new study links the COVID vaccines to menstrual changes in 42% of women. Joe Biden begs the Saudi crown prince for oil and BLM makes an idol out of another thug. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.